Hi, this is Elliot Fishman, and welcome to part two of Complications Post-Cardiac uh, Surgery. And I, and I want to start with this case because I want to go into more detail. This was a great case. This was a patient who presented with chest pain, and you see an intramural hematoma very nicely shown in the non-contrast CT on the axial and sagittal views. And here, of course, it is with contrast. You can see the intramural hematoma and 3D. Uh, in this case, it was thought that this patient should get surgery. Sometimes patients will be treated conservatively, but this was felt to be endovascular repair time, and the patient was uh, had the endovascular graft and did well, but then presented a week later coughing up blood and vomiting. You can see the consolidation in the left lung, but look at the coronal view. You see centrally in that consolidation in the left lung high density. And so when we gave the contrast, look how bright that zone gets, okay? And here it is on the coronal view. So what are you looking at? You're looking at a pseudoaneurysm that bled with thrombus around it in the patient's left chest. Just a beautiful example of a pseudoaneurysm. Pulmonary artery pseudoaneurysms are fairly rare. Often the patients will bleed to death before they're diagnosed. Hemoptysis, most common clinical presentation. Sometimes a mass around an infiltrate on chest x-ray. Opacification of the hemithorax on chest x-ray or CT. And again, in these patients, management has to be aggressive because if these rupture, the patients will die. Pulmonary artery pseudoaneurysms, trauma, such as insertion of a swan gantz or penetrating trauma causes infection, such as a mycotic aneurysm, direct extension, for example, from necrotizing pneumonia or endovascular seeding from endocarditis, or a my myobacterial aneurysm are possibilities. Now, pseudoaneurysms of the pulmonary artery also are due to vascular abnormalities, Bichette's, Marfan's, and Takayashu's, although rare, they can be causes. And of course, septic emboli or occasionally neoplasms can be a cause. So again, a very important diagnosis, something to think about. Rare cases also showing you the importance of IV contrast when you're evaluating these post-operative patients. Now I'll mention sternal dehiscence. That's something we often look at. At times we don't look at carefully enough. What are you looking for? Displacement of the sternal wires or rotation or fracture of these wires or widening of the mediastinal stripe. Sternal dehiscence occurs in up to 7% of cases but you often can predict the patients who are obese, have lung disease, diabetes, renal disease, steroids, or reoperation. The, the high-risk patients are the ones who typically get sternal dehiscence. CT findings, displacement of the sternal wires, sternal erosion, cleft within their sternotomy site, mediastinitis, or even osteomyelitis of the um, bone may be seen. Here's a nice example of sternal dehiscence in a 58 or 59-year-old post-aortic root replacement. You can see the marked swelling in the chest wall. Here is the uh, sternal wound. You can see very nicely there with the uh, dehiscence of the sternum. And again, you could do very nice 3D mapping, even with color coding, to show you the sutures. You can see when sutures are fractured, when they're displaced. Very nice example. Another case of medial stenotomy with the hisses of the sternum, but you can see that the patient's uh, hardware has slipped off the uh, left side, very nicely shown, and you can see why the patient has the dehiscence, which you can see well as you look at an oblique view down the center of the patient's sternum.
or on the 3D images. So again, the post-processing works very nicely in looking at dehiscence. Again, it's something you need to look carefully for. When it's minimal or subtle, you can easily miss it when you only look at the axial views. This oblique coronal sagittal can be very helpful. Now, it's also important to recognize that you can see benign postoperative changes which can simulate pathology. Patients with complex surgeries, we've had prior talks by Dr. Johnson on elephant trunk procedures, patients with aortic arch debranching with arterial reimplantment. Again, often the complicated surgeries that our excellent surgeons are doing can be confused with uh, complications. And also at times hyperdense surgical material can be very confusing. And I'll, I'll show you an example. Surgical material like felt strips and felt pledges have high CT attenuation. And so if you don't have non-contrast CT and you're not careful, they can, ex they can look just like contrast extravasation. Again, if you're uncertain, non-contrast scans. If you haven't done non-contrast, delayed scans work well. Because in this case, you could swear there's a leak from the anterior aorta, but if you had non-contrast, you can see it's just the pledges from the surgery. Again, if you're uncertain, just wait five minutes. Contrast will decrease. If it was a bleed, it would change, get less dense. If it doesn't change, then you know it's just simply foreign matter. Couple good articles. Prescott Foch wrote this article. Normal postoperative imaging findings such as hyperattenuating felt pledgets, prosthetic conduits, and reanastigmatic sites can mimic pathologic processes. Now, in an article uh, by Pham, he made the point that uh, CT and MR have an emerging role as tools that are complementary. Uh, for detection and monitoring of complications after AVR, that the choice between CT and MR will depend on individual patient characteristics, their prosthetic type, and the acuity of the clinical situation. Another article, Psy makes the point, the concordance of CT for diagnosing and localizing prosthetic valve disorders with surgery is 100%. Except for images impaired by severe beam hardening artifacts, CT provides an excellent delineation of prosthetic valves. So what things might we look for? Well, we talk about in post-valve placement, long and short-term complications, complications of prior interventions, and complications related to medication, such as patients being on anticoagulant therapy. There's a nice example of a patient with an aortic valve, but you can see this low density around the valve. This is a failed aortic valve, and the patient, because the valve leaf wasn't moving correctly, developed thrombus on the valve leaflets. You can see with gated acquisition, you can get a very nice look at these valve leaflets, and you can see that it's very easy to uh, use the images to create motion-related images uh, that allow you to look at the prosthesis moving. And you can see in this case, for example, the lack of proper motion. So it becomes very, very important and very easy to do to be able to look at motion. And that becomes very, very important as you're looking at these studies. If you do a 4D display, it's very easy. If one of the limbs of the prosthesis, as in this case, does not move correctly, then you will end up very commonly with thrombus on the valve leaflet. A good rule in my mind, if I see thrombus, I'm also going to worry, is the valve leaflets now working correctly? Another example, here's a beautiful case of vegetation on an aortic valve on a routine post-operative study. 
Again, we typically didn't see these because we weren't gating the study. When the studies are gated, it's very easy to see these findings. You can see the post-op changes in the root and ascending aorta. Very nice post-operative appearance, very normal, but there is the thrombus. What else can look like that? A fibroelastoma, I guess, but in this patient, it's classic for going to be a thrombus right on the valve leaflet. Now, I'll just mention a couple words about the pericardium. We typically say it's paper thin, less than two millimeters thick, contains normally up to 50 cc's of fluid, that the pericardial recesses can be confused with adenopathy or other masses. Number of articles, like this one by Raj, CT is a powerful tool for evaluating the pericardium and its abnormalities. Knowledge of the normal recesses and sinuses is essential to avoid misdiagnosis. Functional imaging is useful in the evaluation of constriction and uh, tamponade. So for an example, beautiful case of pericardial hemorrhage. It's large. Hemorrhage can be due to a number of things, anticoagulant therapy, it can be due to a type A dissection, it can be due to trauma, high density, it's kind of classic for pericardial hemorrhage. Now when, hem when these uh, fluid collections in the pericardium get large, be it blood or just regular fluid, you always worry about cardiac tamponade. Typically a large pericardial effusion with enlargement of either the SVC with the diameter similar or greater than the adjacent aorta or the IVC twice the adjacent aorta diameter. You also see periportal edema and reflux of contrast into the IVC and azygous vein or enlargement of hepatic and renal veins. So again, a classic diagnosis and we'll come back and speak about the pericardium in detail on some different lecture. So concluding then, CT is critical in the management of the patient following cardiac surgery. It's important to understand what types of complications occur to give you a better understanding in the analysis of these images. Technique is critical. CT angiography, gated acquisitions are critical. Post-processing techniques, whether 2D or 3D, are often critical in being able to make the diagnosis. Again, it's a very important diagnosis. Often our findings are the difference between life and death. And with that, let me stop there, and thank you for your attention. Catch you later.